this morning, I want to introduce a new series to you called Truth for Life. And I want you to look at the Lord's Day Bulletin at the mission of the Bible Church of Little Rock. Do you see it right under the heading called Welcome? Let's say it together. It is the mission of the Bible Church of Little Rock to glorify God the Father by enjoying and obeying Him, to proclaim the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, spreading His gospel to all peoples, and to serve one another through the power and love of the Holy Spirit. That's the mission of our church. And if you look down at the left-hand corner of this front page, you'll see the motto of the Bible Church of Little Rock. Do you see it there? It says, Loved by God, redeemed by Christ, empowered by the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian motto. It speaks, of course, as a love by God the Father implied, a redemption by Christ, that is, our Lord Jesus Christ, and an empowering by the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit. I want to use, as we introduce this multi-week series going throughout the summer and perhaps even into the fall, depending on how many messages that we want to bring in this series, Truth for Life, I want to start with the Trinity. And I want to talk about the truth of the Trinity for your life. And rather than going in immediately and beginning to talk about the attributes of God the Father, I want this morning to introduce this series by talking not about the person of God the Father, although we will be talking about His attributes and His character in the ensuing weeks. I want to talk first about the being of the Father, the existence of the Father. Now, I know that in our church, and it is, of course, the pattern of our ministry, to assume the existence of God. Surely it is. But there may be some of you here, whether you're a younger person and you've not yet begun to contemplate the existence of God, or maybe you're a visitor here and you've not come to the place of acknowledging the existence of God, and that's where I want to begin today. I want to begin with the concept that God exists. Now, for most of you, that is already a foregone conclusion, that God exists. But know this, that in our world today, there is a new fashionable theology, which of course is no theology at all, because it is the theology of atheism. The idea that there is no God. There is no theology. It is very, very popular and very, very powerful in our world today. There are certain men for whom you might see or hear familiar names or principles being espoused. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and so many more who are writing book after book after book, challenging not simply evangelicals, but challenging the whole world, including the world of the church, that there is in fact no God at all. 
And in fact, it's even called the new atheism. And yes, it is also true that Christianity is responding. I've noticed that recently there will be a new book forthcoming by Dr. Al Mohler responding to this new atheism. And in fact, I just picked up a book yesterday by Ravi Zacharias called The End of Reason, in which he's responding to the new atheists. And there is a place for that, a major place. And there is a time to discuss and to debate and to confront and to respond to those who are the so-called new atheists. As I said, they're powerful. Their arguments seem to many to be so compelling. And in many ways, we do need, in fact, to respond to the new atheists. The question I suppose we must answer for ourselves and even for them is how do we do so? How do we respond to those atheists and agnostics, those who believe that if God in fact indeed exists, He can't be known? That's the definition of the word agnostic. How do we respond to those who say either there is no God or if there is one He can't be known? Or how do we respond to someone who has had a religious background, but the person would currently say, I don't know if the God of the Bible truly exists, or that there are many gods in the world. And how can you honestly say that there is only one God? And furthermore, how can you attest to the idea that there is a triunity in the persons of the one God? How is the Trinity true and accurate? There are a whole host of questions that need to be answered in this regard. And I hope in this series, and especially beginning this morning, we're going to help you answer some of those questions that indeed need to be answered. But I want to do so from our motto. And so I want to begin this morning with the first in this series of messages entitled, Loved by God. That's the first in the series of our statements that is our motto and is explicated in our mission. Loved by God. And I suppose, because of the way I've introduced this, we have to presuppose in so many ways that we are loved by God. And if we are, who is this God? Who is He? And maybe even backing it up further, because we'll get to that for sure, is He? Is He God? Is there a God? And if so, what kind of God? I hope this is a series that is foundational for all of us, building on the basic biblical tenets of our faith. And I want to begin by telling you that with some of those who are responding to the new atheists and others, they give a number of what appear to be very plausible arguments about the reality of the existence of the being of God. And they use many sophisticated philosophical arguments and rational ideas to try to get you and me to own the idea that through philosophy and through rationalism, God must of necessity by logic exist. And I want to tell you this morning that it is not my position 
nor is it the position, I assume, of the eldership and the leadership and ultimately of yourselves through teaching the position of the Bible church that we are going to try to prove the existence of God through rational arguments. Are rational arguments beneficial? They certainly are. But they, as beneficial arguments, are nevertheless limiting for the one key affirmation that you and I must have, and that is that God exists by faith, by our faith. It is true that Christianity is built upon rational arguments. It is true that Christianity is built upon very, very intelligent philosophical ideas, at least to some degree. And I wouldn't want to poo-poo the idea that philosophical arguments and rational argumentation about the existence of God is utterly unimportant. That's not true. There are some limited benefits to those ideas. But let me say it clearly. They are not compelling in an ultimate sense. They are not compelling in an ultimate sense. If your faith or my faith is built upon the evidences of a rational, philosophically complex argument that God indeed exists, guess what? There's always going to be someone who comes along who's philosophically more sophisticated than you are. There's going to come along somebody who is more intelligent than you or me, and they are going to, if we're not careful, say things and do things from a philosophical viewpoint that will twist and turn the arguments in such a way that it makes you and it makes myself look as though we're not really that smart at all. And that if we were smarter, smart like them, we would understand that there really isn't a God, that we've been duped. That Christianity itself has shown that we are not the most powerfully argumentative, the most astute intellectually, the most philosophically sophisticated. And if we, in fact, were more intelligent, more studied, more reasoned, we would understand that Christianity itself is a farce because Christianity itself is built on the person of God, a person who actually doesn't exist. That in and of itself, my friends, is a powerful argument that people take and then want to prove by their thinking, by their logic, by their philosophy, by meeting them on their own grounds and trying to beat them at their own game. And while that has a level of benefit, it is not ultimately compelling. No, the most compelling idea for the affirmation of the existence or the being of God is that you and I believe the word of the living God. God is a self-attesting God through and by His own revelation to us of who He is and how He acts in the world. In fact, If you don't believe me, listen to the argumentation of Paul against the very philosophers of his age in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I will give you 
at least briefly today, some of those rational arguments that even good, sound Christians use to try to beat the atheists and the agnostics or whoever else at their own game. And so I'll give a few of those to you, maybe three to five of them, and I'll tell you what they are, and I'll tell you what's compelling about them, and then I'll tell you how the critics respond and how deficient they are in and of themselves. And then we'll go to the Word of God to find out exactly how we should approach people regarding the faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is an amazing thing that Paul says to the Corinthians, and remember, the Corinthians were part of a Gentile world that was very philosophically sophisticated, and here is how Paul wants to come to them. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross, this is the cross of Christ, This is the crucifixion of Jesus and His resurrection. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? It's the power of God. So, right off the bat, understand that any discussion that you or I have with an atheist, an agnostic, a critic of the faith, of of some measure, of some note, that what we're dealing with is a person who believes that the word of the cross is folly to them, foolishness. But look at verse 19. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? God says through Paul, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the first thing he does when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, I'm not going to try to wow you with my philosophical arguments. And listen, Paul himself was a very intelligent, educated man. He could have done so if he wanted to, very easily. But he didn't want the power of the cross to be obviated, to be negated. Because he wanted them to know that no matter how philosophically sophisticated you become in the argumentations of the wisdom of the world, it's never going to be enough to prove the very power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't get there through those means. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith, don't miss this, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. This is what we ought to be saying to the debaters of this age regarding the existence or the being of God. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Don't boast in men's wisdom. If you're going to have a boast, boast in this, that God has made the wisdom of the world utter foolishness. God is to be affirmed as existing in our created world and even above it on the basis of the belief that we have that God exists, and that upon the foundation of Holy Scripture. It is what Scripture says. It is what the Word of God affirms. It is what God Himself says through His Word that we are to believe. Now, someone might automatically say, but wait a minute, doesn't 1 Peter 3.15 say that we are supposed to, with gentleness and reverence, defend our faith with the reasonings of the hope that is within us. Yes, it does say that. And so there is something to say about reasons. But the idea is, what is the foundation of those reasons? What is the, the locked-in, non-debatable, non-negotiable, foundational reasons that we should give anyone regarding our faith? And the answer to that question is not to immediately punt to philosophical arguments that, though beneficial they may be at times, are limited in their scope. In fact, it may be said that the closest they can come to is what Romans 1 already says, and that is, it is self-evident to everyone that God indeed exists. It is self-evident evident by the creation of the world and by their own conscience that God indeed exists. That's the best that those philosophical arguments can bring us. It is only by God's Word that God Himself speaks, and when He does speak, He says, not by trying to argue His own existence, I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. The Bible always assumes and never argues for the existence of God because it is patently obvious to everyone, according to Romans 1, that God indeed exists and that man suppresses the truth, sits on the box of truth so that the lid doesn't blow off and all of the truth of God is revealed. This is true and it is what God says in His Word and it is to be believed. 
Now, someone's going to come along and say, that is circularity. That is a circular argument. You've got to believe the Bible in order to argue the Bible that God exists, and you can't affirm that God exists unless you go to that Bible and assume presuppositionally that that Bible is the Word of God so that ultimately God Himself is proven as a result of that Bible. That's circular reasoning, that's illogical, and that is out of bounds. And my answer to that is, every single argument at their core is in some sense a circularity of argumentation. They are. They are. In fact, most of the arguments that people give, either for or against, have in themselves some element of circularity to it. For instance, let me give you a couple of arguments that theologians have given through the years that they believe are compelling for someone to come to a place where they affirm at least the existence of God. The first one is called the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. If you want a mnemonic device that helps you remember this one, just think of the word cause in front of cosmological. The idea is the cosmological argument says that there must be a cause to this world. Cosmos being the Greek word for world, it's an argument for the idea that the world exists when you see the effects of this world, you see the effects of creation, and you must presuppose then that there is a God behind it. You see, and you're presupposing there is a bit of circularity there, you see. You've got to presuppose something. And so you presuppose that if there is the effect of this very complex world, this very, very intricate world, then you have to say that there is indeed a cause behind the effect. And that cause, of course, is God. The first cause. The big cause. Now that sounds very good, and in many ways it is a compelling argument. But what about someone like Immanuel Kant or someone else, David Hume, any of the philosophers of yesteryear or those of today, the new, the new atheists, and they will try as best as they can to shoot holes in the cosmological argument. They'll say, well, but if there is an effect in our world, in fact, our world, that's its effect, then the cause must have something behind it. So there must be something behind the cause that's behind the effect. So who's behind God? Who created Him? And there are a lot of people who are stumped at that point. You know, it's like your little three-year-old when they come, theologians that they are, and they say, Daddy, where did trees come from? And you say, well, they came from the seeds that produce a big tree. Well, Daddy, where did the seeds come from? Well, they came from this creation of ours. Well, Daddy, where did creation come from? And pretty soon you're under the bed reciting the Greek alphabet because you can't go back far enough. And so finally you say to your three-year-old theologian, it's God, son, it's God. And then the inevitable question, well, where did God come from? You see, the cosmological argument, as compelling as it may seem, will not ultimately answer the question for the existence of God. There's another one. Secondly, the teleological argument. The teleological arguments from the Greek word telos means end or goal or purpose. And this is something like the following. The teleological argument says 
that if in fact you have such design in our world that seems complex, that seems intelligent, that seems very sophisticated, then there must have been an intelligent designer behind the design. And right now, there are theologians and scientists who are arguing in manifold ways under the title intelligent design. You might have heard such a group. And they are arguing for the idea that with the intelligence that we see in our world and the complexity of it, there must have been an intelligent designer behind it all. This is sort of the old watchmaker illustration, right? You don't put a watch in a box and hope by shaking it around for a thousand years that a complex, intricate watch is produced by all of its parts. You can't do it. It can't be done. In fact, you remember Sir Isaac Newton, the famous scientist, who received from one of his helpers a very complex model intricately of our solar system. And when he saw it, he was marveling at its design. And he had it in his room. And one of his atheist friends came and saw this very complex reproduction of the solar system in model form and was himself fascinated by it. And this atheist friend said to the kind sir, I must have one just like it. Who made it? And he said, no one. It made itself. Good point. Nice illustration. But does it prove the existence of God? Does it prove with irrefutable facts the existence of the being of God? You see, it is beneficial but limited in its value. Yes, it is true that you can logically, with sophisticated argumentation and nice, philosophical, very complex ideas argue the idea that teleologically the end, the goal, the purpose of all of this design of the universe implies in the strongest sense an intelligent designer. But I ask you, once you have affirmed an intelligent designer, are you any closer to the God of the Bible? Are you any closer to His ways? Are you any closer to His being? Are you any closer to affirming His character? No, you have to go to the Bible for that. There is a third argument. We might call it the ontological argument. The ontological argument. Ontology is a philosophical term that simply means the state of being. It's the doctrine of existence, the doctrine of being. And there are those who come along and say, ontologically, God must exist because if the human mind can conceive of a being more perfect than himself, that it implies very strongly that there is a perfect being and therefore God exists. Very good argument. If there is in fact a being who is perfect and he perfectly exists and if you can conceive of the perfect existence of this being then it certainly implies that there is a being that can and indeed does exist who is beyond you, who is perfect and you can affirm ontologically the state of being of God. But what do David Hume and others say? Well, if this perfect being does exist, then why is our world in the mess that it's in? Why is there so much pain and suffering if this perfect God has created all things? Apparently, there's a fly in the ointment. There's a problem. 
I'm not going to trust this perfect being if the world is the way it is. And you see, there are hedgings against all of these things. If we threw in the moral argument, someone comes along and says, yes, Mr. Atheist, yes, Mr. Agnostic, but what about the idea that there seems to be morality in our world? There seems to be laws that govern how people ought to act with one another. And if there's a law, that implies that there's a what? A lawgiver. And so there's the moral argument. And someone will come along, though, and say, yes, but what is your morality is not my morality. And what about the ethnological argument? The argument of ethnologies, the arguments that there are people groups all around the world, and all of them in some form or fashion, in some way or another, affirm a supreme being. And if they affirm a supreme being, then is it true then that all of these ethnologies of the world affirm in their conscience that there is a God and that He indeed exists, however they make Him, however they fashion Him, however they obey Him or them or her or it, And you see, ultimately, that breaks down and it doesn't really affirm what you would otherwise want it to affirm. Yes, it is true that all ethnologies regard some kind of supreme being in some way, even if that supreme being is what they fashion out of themselves and their own reasonings. Yes, but that doesn't move us any closer to the God of the Bible. It doesn't move us any closer to the God of Christianity. And it certainly doesn't move us any closer to the Trinitarian God. And so now that I've gotten all of us extremely frustrated, open your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I stopped at a very interesting place, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And here's the answer, my friends. Here's the answer to anyone ultimately affirming the truth that God is. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He, God. Look at the nearest antecedent. The presence of God. Verse 29. Verse 30. He, He, God the Father, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. You know how anybody can understand that God is the source of all life and that He is the source of all living, and that He indeed exists, and that He created the world, it is only as a result of believing by faith that He, God, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. That's what the Word of God says. All philosophical reasonings aside for the moment. And that doesn't imply, and don't hear me implying at all, that Christianity is the stupid man's religion. Nobody says that when you come to church, you have to park your brain at the door. We're not saying that. What we are saying, however, is this. If God, in fact, does refute the debaters of this age, if He has rendered the wise man null and void with regard to all of His philosophical arguments both before and against the person of God, it's only going to come to us in one way, and that is if God Himself gives you, by the gift of faith, the ability to affirm that Jesus Christ is holy and real and is our Savior and Master and Lord. And it will not come through philosophical argumentation, but it will come by and through the gift of faith that you and I are given by God Himself. That's what it says. 
He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. He made Christ our wisdom. He made Christ our righteousness. He made Christ our sanctification. And He made Christ our redemption. And you say, why is it like that? Why does it have to be that? Why can't God, through the wisdom of this world, through the wisdom of this age, give us the opportunity to find God through that kind of wisdom? Verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in whom? The Lord. Don't you think because of our sinfulness that if there was anything to boast in other than what God was giving us by a gift of His grace, that we'd take credit for it? We'd take credit for it. Even if there was some infinitesimal little mark where you and I would say, yes, but it was my believing Yes, it was my argumentation, it was my logic, it was my wisdom that we'd take credit for that and ultimately say, it's a whole lot of God, but it's a little bit me. That's the way it is, because ever since Adam's fall, there are what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. From the Greek word nous, which means mind. And so what has happened to all of us in our minds is that as fallen creatures, we want to take credit for our own redemption. Because there are only two religions in the world, only two. The religion of human achievement, that means that I do some of it, even if it's a little bit. And the religion of divine accomplishment, and that means that God has done it all, and for us, He's done it all in Christ. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's talking about the wisdom of this age in chapter 2 and chapter 3. In fact, look at chapter 2. He says, verse 10, these things, all of these things, God's will, God's word, God's person is being these things. God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Notice, we have received that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The only way we're going to understand anything about God is if we are freely given that perception by God. Verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And you can't have spiritual discernment unless it is brought to you by the very gift of God himself. God has to grant it. God has to give it. We could say it like this. You and I are continually fools and naysayers and critics of everything religious unless God invades our life and gives us the gift to believe the right things. In fact, one of those who was challenging the very wisdom of God millennia ago, Robert Ingersoll, was a notorious atheist who made the rounds challenging the person of God, the being of God in 19th century America. And once he lectured challenging God at the moment to strike him dead. He told his audience, According to the Bible, God has struck men dead for blasphemy. I will blaspheme him and give him five minutes to strike me dead and damn my soul. He pulled out his watch and he stood in absolute silence 
One minute went by, then two. The audience grew restless. Three minutes passed. A woman fainted. And at five minutes, Ingersoll curled his lip in contempt. And when the clock reached the time, he snapped his watch shut, put it in his pocket and said, You see, there is no God. Otherwise, he would have taken me at my word. Just shaking his fist in the face of God. And at that same time, someone reported that incident to Joseph Parker, one of the famous London preachers. And Parker was reported to have said, Did the American gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? You see, we think we're so smart. We we think we're so intellectual. We think we're so sophisticated. And we don't know a thing unless God grants it to us. Which shatters our pride which obliterates our arrogance and shows us who we really are. And who are we? We are, by God's grace, who we are. We are, by God's grace, who we are. And nothing else but. This is what the Bible affirms. In fact, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. This, is, this, this can't be clearer John chapter 6, Jesus' own teaching. In verse 60, many of His disciples heard His teaching, hard sayings, saying, who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in Himself, verse 61, that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. You see, the Spirit gives life. The only atheist, the only agnostic who could ever affirm the reality of the being of God, the existence of God, is because the Spirit of God gives that man life. Opens his eyes. The flesh is of no avail. Any fleshly arguments are not going to make it. Even the ones that are fleshly in the sense that they're attempting to prove to an atheist what an atheist in his heart foolishly says. There is no God. Psalm 14.1 The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And there aren't any philosophical arguments that you can use to sway his mind unless the Spirit of God gives life to that soul. Psalm 53.1 Verbatim, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And Jesus said in John 6, 65, And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You see, it's only the Father's will that any of us believe. And it's not to our credit, it is to his glory. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is, this is all over our Bibles if we can put it together and affirm the truth of what God's Word says. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you. Don't miss those words. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So what has been granted to you? 
to believe in Christ and to suffer for His sake. It has been granted to you. It is God's will that you be a Christian and to affirm, therefore, the reality that God indeed exists. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 3, verse 16? Acts 3.16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, this healing of the man, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Through Jesus. That's the only way anybody will ever believe in the gospel. Through Jesus opening their eyes. Acts 11.18 When they heard these things, the preaching of the word of God, they fell silent, these Gentiles, and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, it has to be granted to you. You know what this does? This radically alters your evangelism. You don't have to talk anybody into the faith. You don't have to come up with all kinds of philosophical arguments for which you think you're ready and you go into the debate with the guy who knows more arguments than you do and he puts you to shame and then you walk home saying, I'm just not smart enough. And God says, no. I want you to believe my word. I want you to believe me. And since I don't argue my own existence in my word, you shouldn't either. It's assumed. God exists and every man knows it. And even if they're suppressing the truth and they're sitting on the box and they don't want the truth to come out, it's going to come out anyway. It's like Spurgeon says, the word of God is like a lion or a tiger. You let it out of its cage and it'll take care of itself. This is the truth of God's Word. We could go anywhere. How about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For it is by grace that you are saved, and that through faith, and that is not what? Good. Excellent. It's not of you. It's been granted to you to believe. I mean, even 2 Peter chapter 1, in the, in the very introduction... All over the place, it's telling us over and over and over again. Second Peter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You've obtained a faith through the righteousness of Christ. That's why the great hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11 begins the way it begins. It tells us unmistakably. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You don't see the rational arguments as so compelling. Why, Mr. Atheist? Because you don't have the conviction of things not seen. Well, how do, you, how do you get the conviction of things not seen? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. 
You must believe that He exists. You say, but, but you've got to give me more than just the demand. You've got to give me more than just the command. You've got to give me a rational argument because I want to be able to spar with you because my sinful, wicked heart doesn't want me to bow under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the issue. That's the issue. There are people all across this country, whether they're sophisticated atheists or not, who believe themselves to be in some kind of intellectual elitism, but the fact of the matter is they're in a fog, a God-induced fog, so that they will not believe until such a time as God in His mercy and grace plucks a few of them out of the brands for burning and He places in their minds the very gift of grace and faith so that they believe and are humbled by what God has done that they could never themselves do. So just know that the people you're evangelizing are in a fog. Now, don't tell them that, of course. Or if you're like this new book by Ravi Ravi Zacharias, he opens by saying two Australian sailors staggered out of a London pub into a dense fog and looked around for help. As they steadied themselves, they saw a man coming into the pub, but evidently missed the military medals flashing on his dress uniform. Uh Uh-oh. One sailor blurted out, Say, bloke, do you know where we are? I can't do the Australian accent. The officer, thoroughly offended, snarled in response, Do you men know who I am? The sailors looked at each other and one said to the other, We're really in a mess now. We don't know where we are and he don't know who he is. Well, that's the perfect illustration with all of those who don't believe in our world. They don't know where they are, and they don't know who He is. But don't miss this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, as we close. Don't miss this whomever you are. If you're here today and you don't know God the Father, the self-existent being, the God whose argumentation does not need to occur because it is so self-evident, so axiomatic, but someone needs the God of the Bible as revealed in the revelation of God through the Holy Scriptures to know what we are to be so that we would not know foolishly where we think we are and who He is not really. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature, and no creature, and no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. There's an accounting. There's a day of reckoning. And if you don't yourself fall on your knees in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, whom we'll be talking more 
about Him and about the Holy Spirit in the days to come, you will die in your sins and you will perish forever. Even those of you who claim not to have believed in God all along. You will die in your sins and you will give an account to whom is His due to give an accounting to those who must believe. You must believe today. Don't walk out of this room. Don't take another breath unless you are believing in the only Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom and our righteousness and our redemption. Let's pray together. Our Father, before we can even know of Your love for us, we must affirm Your existence, Your being. And before we do that, we cannot rationally argue our way into it, nor can we rationally argue anyone else into it. It is by Your doing, Lord, that we are in Christ Jesus. It is not our rational and philosophical arguments that get us there. It is by humbly acknowledging the gift that You give to any man so that he may be saved and that he might respond to the God that You are. May all of us, may no one leave this place without responding because You have granted them the ability, the gift to believe and to repent, to turn from sin and to believe on Jesus Christ, Your only Son, our Savior, the One who died, the One who was buried, the One who was raised again on the third day, the One who Himself was proven to be Lord of all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords by His very resurrection from the dead so that you and I would believe on Him for our eternal salvation. Oh, may we be found in Christ Jesus. Through His blood and by His grace. For Your glory, Holy Father, the self-existent One who says, I am that I am. We praise You for opening our eyes and unstopping our ears to the reality that God is. And we adore You and thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.